If I asked you about the plant you are most afraid of, you might think of the Venus flytrap, which is too weak to hurt even your little pinky finger, or Audrey from Little Shop of Horrors. But after that, you might say poison ivy, or poison oak, or sumac, those species of toxicodendron that contain arushiol, the compound that first makes you itch and then break out in blisters. I'm Shauna Doby, the editor of Canada's local gardener magazine, and this is Flora and Fauna. I had a chat recently with a very smart lady named Susan Pell. She is the executive director of the United States Botanic Garden in Washington, D.C. She did her Ph.D. on poison ivy and related plants and continues to research them today. I feel very lucky that she agreed to talk to me, and I'm really happy to share that conversation with you. Here's what she had to say. Well, my name is Susan Powell, and I am the executive director of the United States Botanic Garden. And I did my PhD research and continue to do research on the cashew family, which also includes mangoes, pistachios, and poison ivy, and many other toxic members as well. That's right. The poison ivy family of plants is the same one as mangoes and cashews, and they all fit together with pistachios in Anacardiaceae. And you have a PhD in, in that? I have a PhD in plant biology from Louisiana State University. Now, I have been interested in poison ivy for quite some time because when I was a kid and I used to go camping with my parents, I would see it and I never have been infected by it. Have you? I have, although I have a very mild reaction at this point. And mm-hmm. you are likely in the 10 to 15% of people who will never be allergic to it and will never you know, develop a rash um, resulting from exposure of poison ivy. So you're, you're among the very few of the very lucky. I hope so. My father thought he was though, and he did get it. Yeah. uh, Was was he, was it older? Was it later in his life that he got that reaction? No, I guess not. He would have been probably in his thirties and he had um, weed whacked a bunch of poison ivy and uh, you know, he think he fell asleep in it. And I think there was something about him burning it, but he didn't do damage to his inside. Not that was ever. And did he ever have a rash again after that? No, no, we were smart enough not to touch it. (laughs) Yeah. And this is something that I that I hear a lot where people maybe in their youth, you know, had exposure to poison ivy. Um, and then at some point they had either a massive exposure or later in life had just more frequent exposures. Uh, and then in those times did have a rash. And your father was very lucky in that in burning it, if that is the case, um, you know, that you didn't suffer any anything more than than sort of a dermatitis uh, externally, because the burning and inhaling of the of the smoke from poison ivy is, is probably the most dangerous way you can encounter it. I was too young to remember if my father burned any poison ivy or suffered from inhalation of the smoke. The arushiol in these plants is present in the smoke, and when it's burned, it can cause swelling and blisters the airways. Swelling in the airways can cut off breathing if it's very severe, and that is how it can kill you. If you've been affected by burning poison ivy ochre sumac, but you've recovered, it seems the worst effect it will have is to make you more sensitive in the future. Strangely enough, we had a dog then too, a big golden retriever. And I don't ever recall not petting him because he'd been in the bush, which he always was. Maybe I'm not allergic to it. Maybe you're not. I mean, it sounds like you've had quite a bit of exposure. Uh, and so at this point, if you if you have not developed a rash, it's possible that you won't. 
Do dogs get it? If uh, dogs do not get uh, dermatitis from uh, poison ivy contact, but we can, as you sort of alluded to, we can get it from petting dogs that have had exposure to poison ivy recently and that the oils from the plant would still be present on their fur and then you transfer those um, to yourself. So people who are, are very allergic often do get that sort of transferred contact and get dermatitis. Mm-hmm. What other animals suffer from it? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, uh, poison ivy is <clears throat> encountered certainly by lots of different animals. It's eaten by um, several insects and by uh, many different animals. And uh, there really aren't good records that anyone but humans gets a dermatitis from poison ivy. Now, there might be some primates uh, that ha- that do, but um, you know there are quite a few primates that eat uh, toxic members of the family, such as cashew. Cashew gives a similar dermatitis. And um, there, I've seen videos of different primates uh, in South America uh, eating, you know, pulling off the fruit, the cashew fruit from the tree and pulling off the part that's eaten, which is sort of a, a vegetable part called a hypocarp, eating that and sort of throwing away the, the fruit part, which does in its in its tissues contain the same compounds that cause uh, poison ivy dermatitis. And, uh, you know, no no evidence there of them getting any, any dermatitis. I have been told by, by a few people and the various talks that I've given on poison ivy that their goats um, had some kind of a reaction to poison ivy, but I don't know if I believe that goats will eat just about anything. I've seen them eating house paint and metal, you know, pieces and whatnot. So uh, who's to say that really it was from the dermatitis that it caused their goats uh, issues. And I will say that goats are actually used as a, as a sort of a natural way um, of remediating poison ivy. So you can bring a, a herd of goats in and have them eat your poison ivy away for you. Uh, so I, I really don't think that goats, that goats get it, but uh, have been told that past. What better way to rid yourself of problem plants than to hire goats? They will eat anything and not much phases them. This made me think of seeing a forest floor completely covered with vinca years ago. I used to love vinca, but seeing it so overtake a natural woodland made me rethink planting it ever again in Canada. I looked it up, and it turns out goats can eat vinca with no ill effects. Plants to keep goats away from are yew, delphinium, lily of the valley, and rhododendrons. The only problem with sending them after poison ivy or vinca is that they'll eat anything else they come across when they're doing your gardening for you. Toxicodendron is the genus that poison ivy um, and poison oak uh, and also poison sumac are in. So it's toxico, toxic, dendron, tree. So toxic tree is the sort of meaning of the of the genus name toxicodendron. And the species poison ivy is toxicodendron radicans. And there are a number of subspecies within that species as well. But overarching, if you're talking about poison ivy, you're talking about toxicodendron radicans. You're talking about poison oak in the Western United States. You're talking about um, toxicodendron diverse lobum. When you talk about just poison ivy or one of them, they don't all look the same at all. Now, when I saw poison ivy, it was never in a vine form. And where did you see it? Manitoba, on Lake okay. Manitoba. Absolutely. So the kind, the, the poison ivy, and I said they're all radicans, but there's a species of poison ivy that's called Rydbergii. So Rydberg's poison ivy is what you find in the northern United States and in Canada as well. And uh, that is a freestanding poison ivy. It can be recognized as distinct from um, other poison ivies and the and the species um, toxicodendron radicans. It is freestanding. It's never climbing, and it has uh, larger tends to have larger leaves and a little bit larger fruits as well. But those sort of larger leaves and the, and the freestanding nature of it, and also its distribution, help distinguish it from other poison ivies uh, in the United States. And so that doesn't surprise me that you didn't see it climbing. Poison ivy, you know, toxicodendron radicans can be freestanding as well. I've seen it on the coastal New Jersey and Long Island, uh, certainly 
Valley and um, sand dunes throughout uh, the eastern United States as a freestanding plant. Sometimes it looks like a shrub. Sometimes it's just sort of kind of standing or sort of climbing over sandy soils, that kind of thing. And it can also, of course, climb and be quite an enormous liana, which is a woody vine. And then one population of poison ivy, you might find both the freestanding and the climbing versions of it. Poison ivy is, is really interesting in that it's what we would call a plastic species. And what that means is that it has a lot of diversity in it. So the leaf morphology can be quite a range of sizes and shapes. The fruit size uh, can be quite different in, in different populations. And its climbing habit is quite different. And sometimes poison ivy vines will also branch pretty enormously so that you can have a tree that's covered in a poison ivy vine um, that has you know these branches that come out. What happens is that the tree becomes sort of a poison ivy tree almost with all of its branches coming out. So, you know, I've seen uh, in a single population of poison ivy, leaf diversity vary from the leaflets being, you know, maybe a couple of inches long to six, eight inches long, really, really different. So something sort of the size of a leaflet, the size almost of my head versus the leaflet, you know, the size of a little bit smaller than my fist. And and that's the kind of plasticity that we see or, or diversity that we see in the morphology or the structure of poison ivy. So it can be kind of hard to, to identify for some folks, but I will say very consistent within poison ivy is that it has three leaflets. The leaves themselves, which are made up of the three leaflets, are attached uh, alternating. The leaves are attached alternating on the stem so that you don't have two leaves opposite each other at one point on the stem, but rather there, you you see one a little bit further down the stem, you see another one attached. You'll also see on poison ivy leaves that when they're damaged, you'll see little black spots or wherever they're damaged, you'll see black uh, coloring. And that is oxidizing of the compounds that are released when the leaf is damaged. So they will first be kind of a clear milky color uh, and then they will turn brown and then eventually be black. You can see that on fresh plant material, you can also see it on preserved herbarium specimens that have been collected, you know, hundreds of years ago as well. If you look up three-leafed plants online, one that may cause confusion with poison ivy is American hog peanut. Another is Manitoba maple seedlings. How are you supposed to stay away from a plant that has so many faces as poison ivy? I guess you need to know what it looks like in the area where you go hiking. Ask someone familiar with the area which plants you need to avoid, or you could just avoid all three-leafed plants. As for poison oak and poison sumac, poison oak looks a lot like poison ivy with the famed leaves of three, but the leaves are shaped like, well, you guessed it, oak leaves. Poison sumac has red stems, which will distinguish it from actual sumac trees. And it gets clusters of green or white berries, as do poison ivy and poison oak, which hang under the branches. With real sumac trees, the berries are above the branches. Why is there so much variation? So much variation in poison ivy, probably because it occurs in so many different habitats and it is so widespread. So toxicodon and radicans is found, you know, throughout the United States. It's found in every state except for the state of California. And uh, in, as I said, many different habitats. And so you'll see it, you know, adapting to those different habitats. Or you'll see that it has, has adapted to different habitats. And so that has an impact on the leaf morphology. Um, and this is not an uncommon thing. A lot of, There's a lot of species that if they're very widespread, they occur in a lot of different habitats that it's not uncommon to have a pretty good diversity of form within species. It's, I will say the, the leaf diversity is very impressive in the species as well. And, you know, I mentioned the size being very different, but also what we'll see, what we see is that the leaf margins can be quite different from almost an oak-like leaf to a smooth edged uh, leaf without lobing or with only minimal lobing or with some small kind of teeth and that sort of thing. So yeah, pretty, pretty diverse. One of the other things that I didn't mention with the, 
that's kind of pretty consistent and uh, um, to be able to identify poison ivy is that often the, the petiole or the petiolule, which is the little sort of stalk-like part at the bottom of the leaflet or the bottom of the leaf, um, and also the young leaves and the new leaves as they're growing often are red in color. Um, so that's another way to help distinguish it from some of its lookalike species that, that occur nearby or, or adjacent to where it occurs uh, in various places. Well, I'm a city girl and my strategy is to just not go off the path that I'm walking on. <laughs> but I guess that won't work for everybody. It won't. And I actually, I can tell you a story about that. I used to live in New York City and I rode the subway every day to work. And there was one subway station that I frequently was at that actually had a very large poison ivy vine that was growing up over the platform. And so it kind of really hung over the platform edge. And if you didn't know it was poison ivy, it would literally be touching you in the head. So it's, you know, it can be hard to avoid. And I've seen that in other cities too, growing up on fence lines, that kind of thing, and sort of really hanging over sidewalks. Some people who are very sensitive to it, if the, if it's raining, the rain passing through the leaves and damaging the leaves can actually release some of the compounds and, and can, you can get dermatitis in, in that way. I would say you have to be pretty sensitive, but that can happen. So it's best to learn how to identify it so you can avoid it. Yeah. And, and it changes its look all over the place. So it makes it even harder. What do cities do about it when it's invading like that? Well, apparently in New York City, they did nothing, but... <laughs> Um, well, eventually that that liana, that vine of poison ivy was removed from that uh, subway station. You know, I think it varies how cities respond to it. It is a native plant. It's a plant that typically occurs in disturbed areas. It's what we would call an early succession plant. So as, as habitats are disturbed, it's one of the first plants that will come in and colonize and, and, and spread. So are blueberries. Blueberries are among the first plants to come out after a forest has been destroyed by fire. I'd rather have blueberries. But in a very healthy forest, for example, it's pretty rare to see it in the inside parts of the of the forest that you only really see it typically along pathways and along edges, that kind of thing. So it is a native plant. It does serve lots of really good purposes in addition to its you know nefarious uh, reputation for causing dermatitis. Feeds wildlife. Many birds eat it. Lots of different rodents. Uh, some other some other mammals eat it. Uh, certainly insects eat the leaves as well. Um, the fruits uh, are what primarily are what birds and other um, animals are eating. Vertebrate animals are eating. It's not a horrible plant. You just don't want to touch it. It's one that I would say we don't want to eradicate, but it, it has its place. And so if it is in an area where people are going to come in contact with it, I think, you know, what I've seen is, is cities pruning it or fully, you know, killing it uh, with herbicide. If you're dealing with poison ivy on your property in an area that people need to go, can you compost it? The answer is you'd best not. The arushiol takes a long time to break down and can last on the inside of your composter. To be safe, the Laidback Gardener website recommends burying it where you cut it down and leaving it for a year. The compound that's in it that bothers people is arushiol. Arushiol, yeah. I don't want to get too technical here because chemistry, I really lose my stuff. But what is it about arushiol that gives people um, dermatitis, but not other creatures? Yeah, so the um, basically the, the, the general description of what's happening with contact dermatitis caused by poison ivy is that the arushiol, the, the sort of exudate kind of sap from the plant will get onto the skin and, and, and people's skin. And again, it's about 85 to 95% of all humans will have this reaction. Um, these compounds bind to the proteins in your skin cells. And then when they bind to those skin cells, your immune system recognizes your own skin cells as foreign and attacks them. And so the red, you know, kind of irritated skin, the blistering, the, the swelling that um, results from that contact is your own immune system attacking your own skin cells. That again, it's recognizing as foreign because 
because they are bound to these compounds that come from the poison ivy plant. What's going to relieve the itch and pain of a poison ivy rash? Not much, and nothing will end it. You can try an oatmeal bath, cool wet compresses, and calamine lotion. Burroughs solution containing aluminum acetate might help once the blisters begin to weep. One website said Benadryl antihistamine works, another said it will just make you sleepy, but that may make you forget about it. You'll scratch in your sleep, though, as much as you would if you didn't take it. Apparently, second-generation antihistamines like Claritin and Allegra don't work because the rash is not due to histamine. Steroid creams may help in the first couple of days, but over-the-counter cortisone creams won't do much. Prescription steroid pills can do more. Benzocaine doesn't work, neomycin doesn't work, and bacitrin might make the rash worse. Folks, if you have a case of poison ivy, it sounds like you'll just have to tough it out. If you come into contact with it, you can wash it off before it starts to affect you. Is that correct? You can, absolutely. And you can do that with just normal soap? Yeah. So, I, I mean, there are some products out there. You know, people know Tech New, that sort of thing. Um, there are many products that are out there. When, you know, when these things have been evaluated uh, in studies looking at the effectiveness of different different soaps or different treatments um, for dermatitis or, you know, different soaps for getting rid of the oils um, that you've come in contact with, all of the various products to wash away way, the, the oils don't do much better than, than standard soap. So I would say probably not worth the investment uh, in, in buying a very specific poison ivy soap, but rather just making sure that you're washing yourself well with soap and also with cold water, not warm water. And, and, and that is because it, these are oils. If you put hot water on them, they'll thin and spread further. So uh, cold water and soap, washing quickly after you have contact, washing your clothing, washing your animals, washing your tools, your gardening tools is really important uh, to make sure that you're getting rid of those compounds. I've heard of people getting uh, dermatitis from coming in contact with herbarium specimens that were collected decades ago, that those compounds are still active and can still cause us dermatitis. Um, other animals don't get it. Um, you know, why they don't, I don't know specifically, but I can say it is a very unique to sort of our chemistry uh, that we have this reaction and to our immune systems that we have this reaction. And what I would imagine is that the other animals just aren't having the same binding to the proteins and and having their immune systems recognize themselves as form. I looked for a study that indicates that primates get contact dermatitis from poison ivy or from arushiol. I couldn't find it, but I did find a PhD dissertation from 2021 by Nicole Marie Patterson called Adaptive Evolution in Primate Immune Receptors that honestly, I couldn't follow it at all. I found two references to Arushiol, but I fell asleep before getting to how it may have affected, I think, orangutans? Something about headless ligands and antigen-binding pockets? If you can understand it, let me know. I'm just going to go with this. Only humans get poison ivy and possibly some of the higher primates. If I can move to uh, poison sumac, is that the most, the worst of the, the most poisonous? What's the worst? So, I mean, the, so the family uh, that poison ivy is in is called the Anacardiaceae. It's the cashew family, as I said. And the cashew family has about 800 species and there are about 80 to 81 genera. And about 32 of those genera cause contact dermatitis. So there's a lot. Yeah. And I would say in the United States, um, and if we include in North America, there are dozens of species of Anacardiaceae that cause dermatitis. 
Um, in, in Mexico and uh, the Caribbean, probably the worst of those are in the genus Comocladia. In the United States and Canada, you have um, certainly the poison ivies, poison oaks on the, on the West Coast. And then, and then there's also, as you said, poison sumac, which is another member of the same genus Toxicodendron. Um, and that occurs in the eastern half of the United States and, and is a shrub that gets called poison sumac because it kind of looks more like a sumac than it does a poison ivy because, it, because it's a shrub. But the genus Toxicodendron occurs south into South America and also west um, into the Pacific um, and Asia. Yeah, it's in China as well, um, it's kind of pretty far into Asia. So it's in places it is trees, uh, shrubs. Um, we have, of course, the, the liana or vine, uh, and it can be you know, the freestanding as well. So pretty diverse genus and it's very diverse family. So the worst one, I'd say there is there is one species of Comocladia that also has spines. So it will cut you and give you dermatitis of just like really mean, you know, so probably worse than poison ivy. And there are members of the family in the Pacific and, and in Asia and, and certainly parts of Sub-Saharan Africa as well um, that are quite nasty. There's a genus um, Semicarpus that's mostly uh, in Asia and the Pacific, and that one causes really, really bad dermatitis as well. What's worse than poison ivy? A plant that cuts you and puts poison ivy into the cuts. OMG, it sounds horrible. Well, we're going to take a break now while I calm down from this idea but we'll be back in just a moment. Canada's local gardener just got even better. Flora and Fauna, a new e-digest coming weekly. Go to localgardener.net to find out more information. That's localgardener.net. We're back, and I had to ask Susan about cashews. Have you ever noticed that you can't buy them in the shell? With cashews, how do people process them? They have to be cooked before they can come to North America. Is that correct? You can buy raw cashews. They may be steamed slightly or something, but they're you can buy raw cashews in the U.S. Those are typically going to be separated by hand. Those are not machine separated. The reason that you never buy a cashew in the shell is because the shell itself and all the tissue outside of the shell cause dermatitis. And so you'll never unshell your own cashew unless you happen to be somewhere where there's a fresh, where there's a tree, cashew tree, and you're harvesting it that way. So the whole the whole fruit itself and then the, the surrounding of the seed um, will cause dermatitis. And actually, if you buy cashews, and this is usually the case with kind of cheaper cashews, you'll see sometimes like little black specks or little pieces of looks like kind of shell stuck onto the seed that'll be black. And that those little pieces of black shell and exudate or sap are the compounds that cause dermatitis. And so I, I do know of people who've had a pretty severe reaction from eating cheap cashews and getting a, a dermatitis-like reaction, certainly kind of externally, but also having some internal problems with that as well. So I always say either either be willing to pick those things off and wash your hands or buy high-end cashews. So it depends on if they're you know roasted cashews and whatnot, those are sometimes mechanically separated uh, in processing. But yeah, raw cashews, I believe, are, are by and large uh, separated from the rest of the fruit by hand. In a few South Asian countries, workers slave away at removing cashews from the shell. They do it barehanded. Why doesn't somebody build a machine to do it? In places with barbaric labor laws, people who shell cashews are subject to working in a place that roasts them too, breathing in oils from the smoke. Pretty painful. A 2011 report from Human Rights Watch showed that in Vietnam, imprisoned drug addicts were forced to work on cashew farms to help rehabilitate them. I'm not sure how that would work. I am so glad I live in Canada. 
some edible members of the Anacardiaceae. So the big ones we know are mangoes, pistachios, and cashews. Those are world commerce, global commerce. Um, but there are quite a few that are more regional. There's a there's one that occurs in, in Madagascar and in South Africa that's called marula. And there's a liqueur that's sold in many countries, including the United States. It's called amarula and cream. And it has a big elephant and some uh, yellow fruits on it. And those are members of the Anacardiaceae as well. And then people are probably familiar with uh, hokote or hog plum, which is a, um, a member of the genus Spondius, and it occurs throughout uh, Central America and in other places is planted as well. And there's several species of Spondius that are eaten, and those are used to make juice and ice cream and jams, that kind of thing. And you can buy them fresh. Even in the U.S., you can get fresh. Now, what part of the mango would affect people? Yeah, so great question. So pretty much the parts of the mango that cause dermatitis are similar to what causes dermatitis in poison ivy and also in cashew, with the exception of the flesh of the of the fruit. Most people that get a dermatitis reaction from, from mango, it's from either eating the skin of the mango or chewing the flesh off of the mango. So I always tell people, if you love mangoes, you never want to pick up the skin and sort of chew every last little bit of the flesh off of that skin, because the more contact you have of that, the more likely you are to develop a reaction. And typically what you'll see is kind of a red ring around their mouth and on their lips. Um, that's the dermatitis that they got from, from chewing on that mango skin. And a few people that uh, have developed that allergy later in life and can no longer eat the fruit that they love so much because even the knife passing through the skin to cut into the flesh, it tra- transfers enough of those compounds that it causes them problems. Wow. I didn't know that. There's only a few cuisines that really use mango skin. I occasionally see it in Indian cooking that they'll actually include the skin in it. Um, and I just always try to avoid that. And cooking does nothing. Get rid of the oil or desensitize. Good question. It doesn't seem to. I wonder about, is it, you know, they're volatilizing. Like if you burn poison ivy, what's happening is that you're volatilizing or sort of releasing the compounds into the air. And I don't know the case with mango. It's a really good question. If they, if those compounds might be either altered or, or volatilized in the cooking process. I do know people who've had reaction from eating cooked mango skin, but could it have been a little undercooked? I'm not sure. So I would say probably avoid it just to be safe. I've never eaten mango skin, not that I know of. If you've ever thought after eating a mango, geez, I wish I had some more. Don't scrape the flesh off the skin with your teeth. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Back to poison ivy, when they uh, reproduce, are they monoecious, dioecious? Poison ivy itself is bisexual, meaning that it has both female and male parts uh, in the flowers. So they produce, one flower produces both eggs and sperm and will produce the, you know, the seed uh, inside of them. And so, and the fruit that they produce is called a droop. It's equivalent to like, you know, a peach or an apricot or a cherry where it has a pit um, in the inside. And it has, in this case, not so much fleshiness on the outside, but sort of waxiness on the outside. And another way to identify poison ivy, if it is in fruit, they're, they're pretty easy to identify because what happens is that the outer part of the fruit, um, which is called the exocarp, kind of breaks away, kind of crumbles away when the fruit is mature. And that the color of that is sort of a yellowish, kind of a white to yellowish, uh, light brownish color. And then when it falls away, you're left with a white to yellow, almost waxy like flesh around the, the pit. And that part of the fruit will have black lines in it. They have these resin canals that go through that part of the fruit. um, And you'll see kind of black stripes um, on the fruit. So kind of a white to light yellowish fruit with black stripes on it. And there's nothing else that looks like that. Uh, Definitely poison ivy if you see. And the berry is quite small. It's, um, what is it, about one centimeter? It's less than that. The drips are quite small. Yeah. I mean, they're less than a centimeter, probably, you know, probably half a centimeter, but they vary. They vary quite a bit. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, sort of a vine version. Some of the larger ones, what's called Eastern 
poison oak is poison ivy member as well. And uh, those can be a little bit bigger. That red virgin's poison ivy, Toxinum rybergii, that, that's kind of along the U.S.-Canadian border, that one can have larger fruits as well. And those are probably pushing, you know, pushing a centimeter. I've looked for stripes on poison ivy droops on pictures online. I can't see stripes, but I hope to one day see them from a healthy distance or with gloves on. Maybe I should consult with a bird. Fruit and seed-eating birds are fond of the droops, including woodpeckers, wild turkeys, crows, and cardinals. What got you interested in studying poison ivy in the first place? Or was it poison ivy specifically that you were studying or the whole family? So I studied the whole family, but it was poison ivy that got me interested in studying it. So when I was in grad school, I had worked on, actually I worked on cycads for about a year and that project really wasn't advancing uh, like it needed to advance for me to finish my PhD. So I needed to find another project and I knew that there had been um, at that time some controversy about separating poison ivy, so the toxic conundrum from sumax the genus Roos. And so I looked into that. I thought this was kind of an interesting story. I wanted to know more about it. I looked into it. And what I found was just a really rich family that had a lot of, um, you know, a lot a big need for research to be done on it, but that the question of whether toxicodendron and Roos were the same genus or different genera was actually pretty well resolved. They are definitely different genera. They're not even super closely related within the family. So I didn't work on that, but I still have always had that interest in, in poison ivy and in Sumax. Um, and I ended up working on the entire family uh, globally. Can I ask more about your research? What was the issue that your research question? So as I started looking into the family, what I did is I started reaching out to other, you know, to sort of experts in the family. And one of the people that I reached out to is um, John Mitchell, who is an honorary curator at the New York Botanical Garden. And it was, was in the 90s. So I wrote him a letter, like a physical paper letter. And he got right back to me and was very excited to have someone interested in the family. And as I started talking to John about what research kind of had been done already, who was doing research currently, um, it became clear that that the biggest need, uh, immediate need for the family was to understand the evolution of the whole family and sort of the lineages within the family, how these different plants were related to each other, and that we could use that then to inform other studies, whether they were looking more closely at different genera or looking to to adjust the, the, the nomenclature of the family, move sort of species around into different categories, different genera, um, where they really belonged evolutionarily. So I did, I, I created a, a phylogenetic tree of the family. So it's sort of a, a tree tracing the evolutionary origins of different um, different genera, different species. And I used DNA data to do that. So I did a, a phylogenetic study of Anacardiaceae. And then I did several other phylogenetic studies um, of different genera within the family as well. And now today what I do, I mean, as I said, I'm the executive director of the U.S. Botanic Garden. I don't have a lot of time for research, um, but I do try to publish a couple of papers a year with collaborators. And uh, certainly I still work with John Mitchell. He's my closest colleague and collaborator, really wonderful. Um, member of my family at this point, really. John and I have focused mostly on doing um, survey papers. We just did a, a survey paper last year on uh, neotropical anacardiaceae, looking at kind of all of the different genera in the family that, are, that occur in the neotropics. And we're working on several other projects as well, looking at different species, different different floras. We wrote the treatment of anacardiaceae for the flora of North America, um, which includes uh, just the United States and Canada, and also we're kind of trying to adjust some of the some of the nomenclature based on the, what we know about the evolution of the family. I didn't get to ask Susan this because I found it afterward. The ginkgo tree has a compound that is very similar to erucheol. Gingolic acids have a similar, I don't know, chain on the molecules or something. 
Chemistry is not my strong suit. It isn't my suit at all. Anyhow, they cause a similar allergic reaction to erushiol. Being exposed to ginkgolic acid can give you the first-time exposure that you need to have a reaction the first time you're exposed to poison ivy. And where do you get levels of ginkgolic acid high enough to rate on your allergen screen? Ginkgo biloba supplements. The Hong Kong Consumer Council tested a bunch of ginkgo supplements and found that the level of ginkgolic acid ranged from 16 times to, get this, 733 times more than the level recommended by the WHO. Nonetheless, if you're taking supplements and you've been taking them for a while, I guess, don't worry. There really aren't noticeable differences in the effectiveness of different soaps on getting rid of poison ivy. I will say a lot of times what I get asked about is jewelweed. Jewelweed is something that people is sort of a you know, kind of a home uh, remedy for poison ivy. Um, jewelweed does have some properties in reducing swelling, and so there might be some impacts there. But if you see you know jewelweeds, poison ivy soap, that kind of thing, there's really no data that show that it's any more effective than you know dial soap or any soap that you would have at home otherwise. And so jewelweed is really not, uh, you know, not an effective treatment for poison ivy. Home remedies for poison ivy rash include rubbing alcohol, witch hazel, baking soda, aloe vera gel, cucumber slices, chamomile essential oil, and eucalyptus essential oil. There are more essential oils you could try, including calendula, juniper, lavender, pine, tea tree, and peppermint. Personally, I can't imagine putting peppermint oil on any kind of sore rash, but you're supposed to use these oils by adding a few drops to water and using it as a compress or by mixing the oil with a lotion or a carrier oil. There are some products that will actually block the poison, the urushiols from binding to your skin cell proteins by binding to them first, basically, by binding to the, the urushiol first. Those actually are quite effective. So you can you can kind of Google search those and, and find out what those are. But there are some products that you can use to kind of block the dermatitis from ever taking hold. Uh, and those are, as I said, quite effective. Mm-hmm. In your research, did you use any of these things with the nature of your research that you had to handle a lot of poison ivy? Yeah, I I did. So I worked on the family globally. I've done um, several pretty big expeditions around different places uh, in the world to collect members of the Anacardiaceae, the the poison ivy family, um, and have collected many of those that I mentioned that are quite nasty, like semicarpus. And they, you know, you've got to be equipped to to be able to collect them. And that equipment needs to be very uh, specific to the dermatitis causing plants. So I have, I always bring, you know, gloves with me, sort of dishwashing gloves, long gloves, or disposable gloves sometimes um, that I only use to collect those plants. And I'm sure to not touch the outside of the gloves once they come in contact. Um, certainly, you know, having newspaper around your, your specimens uh, is important so that you're not contaminating the rest of the plant press, washing your pruners, uh, any tools that you use to collect those plants. And uh, as I said earlier, I, I at this point, I do have a reaction to poison ivy. I get very small little bumps. I'm very lucky in that I, although I am allergic to it, I don't have a nasty rash. I don't get big giant blisters. I don't have a lot of irritation or swelling. Um, so I just have a pretty mild reaction. Now that could change, you know, because I am allergic. I might someday just be covered in blisters, you know, when I, when I research these things, but I am also always very careful. I obviously know how to identify poison ivy in all of its forms. And um, I'm very careful to not come in contact with it. And I, I'm a Girl Scout troop leader and I teach my Girl Scouts how to, how to recognize it. Um, certainly my daughters know how to recognize it as well. So we just try 
not to touch it unless we are equipped to do so. Bentoquitam is a barrier against poison ivy. You can get a lotion called Ivy Block that should protect you somewhat. You need to replace it every four hours, and it's important to understand that Ivy Block is for before you touch poison ivy. It won't do anything for you if you have a rash. Are these plants the only place that one would find Arushiol? Within the Anacardiaceae, there are many places that you'll find it in many different genera, but I don't know of it being in other plants and other families. I'm not going to say it's not there because there's, you know, there's a lot to be learned still about plants, but um, I haven't seen records of, of it being elsewhere. There certainly are lots of compounds that plants produce, though, that do cause dermatitis, lots of different types of dermatitis. One of the most interesting, I think, is compounds and, and plants that can cause photodermatitis which means that you come in contact with lime juice does this. You squeeze a lot of limes and you go out in the sun, you can get a rash from where the lime juice was touching you once you have the sun exposure, but the lime juice exposure by itself won't cause the rash. The first plant I think of in connection with phytophotodermatitis is giant hogweed or Heracleum mantegazianum. This plant originated in the Caucasus region and was first brought to England as an ornamental in the 1800s, and it is very ornamental. It grows up to 16 feet high, and when it finally blooms, has a series of white umbels at the top. The problem is that the sap of the plant will leave you with a nasty rash, blisters, and scars. The Varanu kumarin, the compound responsible, isn't an allergen. It'll just plain hurt you. It's activated by exposure to the sun. Do you know of any instances where Arushiola has been used, I don't know, in warfare or anything like that? Um, well, I, I don't know. I don't have any examples of when it's been used intentionally, um, but I have two examples of wartime encounters with Arushiolas um, that were very unpleasant for enlisted American soldiers and many other soldiers, I'm sure. Um, and that is uh, during, during World War II, um, soldiers were coming down with rashes on their forearms and um, they really couldn't figure out what this, what this was. And actually, there was a, an enlisted botanist who finally figured out that the bars that they were going to have some drinks, they were leaning on these bars and the bars were actually lacquered. And lacquer is actually from the sap of a toxic and endurance species that grows in, in Asia. And uh, it's heavily processed and it's you know applied. So the sap is basically boiled down and then it's applied to woodworking. Um, and different cultures do this in different ways. But in this case, this was in the Pacific and they were lacquering the tops of the bars. And the, you know, the dermatitis causing abilities of those compounds, sometimes if they're not done entirely properly, can still remain. And so in this case, the bars were transferring essentially, you know, toxic endurance sap, poison ivy sap um, to the soldier's forearms and they were getting the rashes. They figured out what it was to, you know, could avoid that. Unfortunately, a very similar thing was happening during the Vietnam War. But in that case, it was actually the, the latrine seats that were lacquered. So very different uh, <laughs> rash situation there. Also took a botanist to be able to figure that out. I never thought about putting chemical warfare in toilet seats. That is wicked. It turns out the Americans did consider Arushiol in World War I to fill grenades. It was too difficult to guarantee efficient inhalation, so they scrapped it. According to Vladimir Pitchman and Zenek Hahn in their 2016 book, Military Importance of Natural Toxins and Their Analogues. I guess in a war situation, giving a bunch of enemies poison ivy isn't a huge deterrent anyhow. 
I will say, I mean, the lacquer connection is really interesting. You know, lacquer is really prized. And as I said, it can be done. It's done in different ways by different cultures. Sometimes it's sort of, you know, woodworking that the that is then lacquered. Sometimes they they actually use sort of a almost like a, a frame, like a bamboo frame that then is, is sort of built up with multiple layers of lacquer. And these are, you know, really wonderful pieces of art that are produced throughout different parts of Asia, but but sort of most notably in Japan and, and in Korea, but also they're made in, in Myanmar and you know, other places as well. And, uh, but again, it is a nasty industry in that you think about only 10 to 15% of the population of people is, is not susceptible to getting the dermatitis from, from toxidinerin. The people who are in the lacquer industry, they're literally tapping these plants, collecting the, the sap that, that is what causes the dermatitis, boiling it down. So volatilizing those compounds. The hope is that you find people in the 10 to 15% um, of the population to work in those, in those industries. But the reality is that it's a, it's a nasty job to have. It's it's a practice that still still goes on today. They're still still making lacquerware. The Japanese have been making lacquerware since at least 7,000 BCE. Usually and traditionally, a wooden tray or bowl is painted with lacquer, which is just strained tree sap from Toxicodendrum vernicifluum with iron oxides mixed in to give it a black or reddish color. Is lacquerware strong? Heck yeah. A 3,200-year-old teapot was dug up with the spout, which was dipped in lacquer, almost completely intact. After 3,200 years, that's wild. I love the Anacardiaceae. We people know it um, and love it for its cashews, mangoes, and pistachios and other edible fruits. And they they fear it and, and loathe it um, for its contact dermatitis causing members. But I think if we if we learn how to recognize poison ivy and avoid it, we can let it live and and continue to support the wildlife that depend on it for food and continue to allow it to hold the dunes uh, in the eastern United States, um, where it does a good job and really holding those holding back erosion along our shores. Poison ivy is food for a huge number of creatures. It's worth leaving it where you don't need to trod. What's more, you might as well get used to it being there because research from Jacqueline Moen et al. shows that the more greenhouse gas we produce, the more poison ivy will grow and the more erucheol it will have. So glad we had Susan Pell here to talk to us about poison ivy and its kin. She gave us a really good idea of what these plants are and their place in the world. Thank you so much, Susan. I'd also like to thank Yasmin Conception, our producer, Carl Thompson, our graphic designer, Ian Leet, our president, and the Government of Canada for the funding to make flora and fauna possible. <laughs>